Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on BlueNile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands. All hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I try to think about what are the most important problems that no one is talking about. I think this is a really important frame because there are a lot of important problems that people are talking about. I'm pretty confident that we have good people working on climate change. We have smart people working on some of the biggest problems facing society. But when it comes to some of these more niche issues like monopoly and this sector, that, or in higher education, exploitive practices, I think too often these things go under the radar. And the advice I would encourage everyone to do is think a little bit differently and find things that no one else is really talking about because those are the, the areas where you're probably needed most. How you day, how you day. That was the voice of Sahaj. Now, today's episode is going to be one that could be considered controversial for some and eye-opening for others. Many of you know that I am very, very involved in the education system. I am a professor and a teacher at a few universities. However, I've also thought that the education systems that we have all around the world aren't perfect. In fact, I feel like there are so many gatekeepers to prevent many people from having access to education. Today's guest, Sahaj, has done a great, great amount of research as to why that's happening, how it's happening in his new book. And we have a very, very interesting conversation about potential ways that we can move past it. So I hope that this is one that you will reflect on. I hope that this is one that you will allow for critical thinking and then band together to see if we can dismantle the systems of oppression that exist around the education system. Enjoy. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of As Told by Nomads. And today's guest is Sahaj Sharda. Now, his new book is called The College Cartel. Sahaj is starting an essential debate about the monopolistic greed of the Ivy League colleges and other elite schools. In recent years, elite colleges have been sued for price fixing, sued for discrimination in admissions, and scandalized by varsity blues. Sahaj's book is both an exploration of these scandals and an analysis of the underlying force creating them, an artificial scarcity of elite seats, if you will. Many of you who have listened to this podcast for years now, about nine years, you know that we discuss a lot of things that are going against access or preventing access or showing and erecting barriers for people of different backgrounds. So I'm really, really excited to get into this particular topic, because I know sometimes we get a lot of listeners from different parts of the world who are seeking to get into an elite college. Welcome to the show, Saj. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you, especially given your background and 
discussing some of these issues of access. Thank you. You know, I'll share a story. I'm from Nigeria. I don't know how many Nigerians you know, but we have this thing, at least it's drilled into us. If you're going to go to America, you got to go to Harvard. <laughs> you know, you got to go to MIT. If you don't go into Ivy League, go to Stanford. And then, you know, and, you know, Stanford's, you know, even if it's not quite considered the Ivy, it's, it's one of those top schools. And then all these things were always drilled into me. And so I internalized that because I didn't get into those schools as failure. I got into the final round for Cornell, my MBA. And then when I didn't get in, I thought, oh, my parents are going to be disappointed. But then I moved past it because I had to learn how to find my identity outside of that. But I share that story because there's so many people I, I, I mean when I hear from the podcast where elite schools to them means great opportunity. What do you say to that? Let me just relate a story from my background, which I think is very similar to exactly what, what you're saying. So, you know, in my family, my grandfather was the first to go to college and then he went on, got a master's, got a PhD. And so the culture he created for subsequent generations was that education was this sort of like, you know, sort of like almost like a holy good that this was the path to prosperity. And it's as important as possible, I think, like you said, to go to the best schools, to go and apply to the Oxbridge in the UK or Harvard or Stanford or MIT. And that was always drilled into me too. And I think this is actually a very common story, especially amongst immigrant communities to the United States. And so I'll tell you this one story from my high school, which is something that really has shaped a lot of my perspective about how elite colleges and elite seats sort of allocate self-esteem within these communities. So when I was a junior in high school, there was a girl who was a year above me. She was of South Korean heritage, and she was applying to a bunch of elite colleges. You know, when everyone started to get the results back, everyone was super excited to share where they'd gotten in. And so she told everyone that not only had she gotten into Harvard, but she'd also gotten into Stanford. And the two schools had been so impressed with her They'd come up with a special program where she could do two years at each and graduate with a degree from both. And this is a type of program Harvard and Stanford have never, ever done before. And this girl was quite clever, but she wasn't so special that they would go out of their way to do this. So naturally, a lot of students were skeptical. But somehow the story started to spin out of control because within a week, the South Korean press had flown into this high school campus in Northern Virginia in the suburbs. And they were interviewing random high schoolers, like people who are younger, people in my grade, whether we knew the quote genius girl. And it had become this massive international story that this girl was so talented that she'd basically bent these two schools into competing for her so vigorously. And in South Korea, this was really big news. Well, as the media coverage started to intensify, more and more things started to unravel in her story. Because the same media that was asking questions around her high school started asking Harvard and Stanford what they thought was so special in this girl. The rumors started to swirl that she hadn't gone into either of the schools. Suddenly, later that week, everyone at her school almost got an email from what was nominally a Harvard professor. And he was saying that we should stop gossiping about Sarah Kim in his email because she was a very exceptional student and she was going to go to Harvard. And we all thought that was weird. Why would a Harvard professor care so much about this random student that he would email a whole high school class a couple states away to stop gossiping? I mean, it just seemed very implausible. And actually what happened was that this girl had impersonated this Harvard professor and either hacked or come up with some other way to get a harvard.edu email and send out this email blast. Once that came out, I mean, this became a massive scandal. Her parents had to go in front of the media and apologize. There was CNN coverage of this, a lot of domestic media, Washington Post, other places covered this story. I think it's sort of enigmatic of sort of this 
broader theme that, that you and I have both discussed, which is, you know, amongst immigrant communities, there's so much pressure to get into these top elite colleges. And there's pressure that's almost at this point become unreasonable because what we've seen over the last few decades is the acceptance rates at the schools have plummeted to the point where they're now very close to zero. I mean, some elite colleges don't even release their acceptance rates anymore because it's like 3%, 2.5%. I mean, crazy, ridiculous numbers. This is why you're seeing more and more of these stories like the girl from my high school or Varsity Blues, or there's a funny one, both from 2007 and this week, they were like mirror image stories. But apparently in 2007, there was a girl who pretended to be a Sanford student and hung around campus for like eight months before anyone caught on. And she was climbing in and out of an open window into an empty dorm room every night. And no one figured it out because she didn't have a key card, but she would go and take exams. She would go to the mess and eat food with everyone. And everyone just thought she was a student. And something similar happened actually, you know, a couple of weeks ago, another student at Stanford was hiding in the laundry area and sleeping in a sleeping bag in the laundry area and pretending to be a student during the day. And they finally caught this student. I mean, you know, they sound absurd. And I think it's very easy to indict these particular students like, oh, they're crazy. They're toxic. But I would always turn it around. You know, I mean, these are kids, right? So what does it say about our system that's creating all these wild, crazy incentives and distorting behavior in such insane ways? As you were sharing those stories, I kept thinking they must feel like they have no other choice, that they have to do this. This is their way to get there. And then that leads me to the grand topic of the book is because you talk about collusion. How are elite colleges colluding to make seats scarce? And by the way, for the audience, when we say elite colleges, it's not just like Ivy or Oxbridge or, you know, Oxford or Cambridge. There's, there's Dukes. There's a Penn State. You know, they're all Stanford. All these universities also have very, very low admission rates. So I'm curious, how are they making seats scarce? Maybe like the top 25, top 30 schools have come up with a very elaborate, almost beautiful system to collude. They've created this structure and system where all of the schools basically optimize for their ranking. In the rankings market, there's basically only one player, which is the U.S. News and World Report. Everyone annually checks those rankings in the board meetings at the schools amongst the trustees. Those are the rankings they basically index themselves to to see how well they're doing. And if you go into how the U.S. News and World Report ranks elite colleges, I mean, there are a lot of numbers, but the basic logic is spend as much money as possible on as few students as possible. And if you do that, you will be very high in the ranking. Now, the second part of that, on as few students as possible, is how you start to create these incentives for each school to not expand. Because if you expand, what's going to end up happening is you're going to drop in the ranking. So what we've seen at schools like Yale is basically a stagnancy in the number of seats. And you might say, well, okay, but that doesn't mean necessarily that they're colluding. Or even if they are colluding, maybe there are good reasons for that. Maybe Yale can expand. Maybe, you know, New Haven isn't so big to support so many students. But I think, you know, all of these things really are sort of just showing us how little we've come to expect from the school. Because in any other industry, if the number two player had $40 billion in the bank, we would expect that person to build another factory or build another unit or whatever their good is to produce more of it. But Yale, instead of buying a new campus or building a new campus or going and expanding on the campus it does have, hasn't done any of that. And it very easily could. So the question is, what is driving the logic at these schools where they're sitting on these vast amounts of capital that they have no idea how to deploy for their educational purpose? And so instead, 
they give it to the endowment manager to invest in random equities. They're not focused on the educational mission with that capital anymore. What explains that? I think the only way to explain it is you have this hub and spoke cartel where the schools all basically collude to make sure that the U.S. news remains very dominant in its rankings market. And so if you look at it, U.S. News and World Report has like an overwhelming monopoly market share in the rankings market. All the students go and look at it. And part of the reason is because they know the schools take it very seriously. And so by sending these signals out, the schools are taking U.S. News and World Report really seriously. They're helping U.S. News and World Report become the one player in this winner-takes-all rankings market. And by doing that, they're allowing U.S. News and World Report in turn to coordinate every single school to become more and more scarce over time as applications continue to increase, but class sizes stay stagnant, which is, again, why we've seen you know these acceptance rates start at around like 20% for Princeton in like 1980 to now where it's low, low, low single digits, 4%, 3%. These are not unheard of acceptance rates at the elite colleges anymore. And so it's this hub and spoke structure where you have this sort of like US News and World Report is sort of like the brain that is coordinating all of the scarcity across the system at the elite colleges. And because it's zero sum, you know, there can only be 25 schools in the top 25. There's no entry either. So no one's coming in to like try to take up market share. It's impossible to do that the way the market has been organized. You're talking about this on the heels of was it Yale and Harvard dropping out of the rankings? So yes, that was in the law school market and not the undergraduate market. But I think the scarcity problem is a much bigger deal at the undergraduate level. When you start to go to law schools, I think like, you know, the acceptance rates at like the top law schools are still like 10%, 20%. Like it's still not so extreme as the undergraduate level. I'm saying they dropped out for reasons that many people felt were restrictive as well. They felt, I believe it was student debt was a factor in, in some graduation rate. And so that was one of the reasons why some people felt like the U.S. ranking was was corrupt and, and all that. So I, I wasn't saying it to counter your point. I was saying they came up with their reason for why they didn't want to participate in that, which is slightly different from what you're saying. So it just makes me think that there's a lot more at play that isn't making the metric fair, you know, undergraduate or law school level. And this is sort of the point, right? Like at the law school level, what did the school say? They were trying to pressure U.S. News to change its rankings criteria. Essentially, they all got together. They pressured them. U.S. News said no in that market. So now they've pulled out. You know, I have no doubt that in a year or two years, everyone's going to go back in because the U.S. News is going to change its too. And this is sort of the way it works. I mean, this is, you know, the collusive thing I'm talking about is the schools all basically get together, put a ton of pressure on U.S. News or, you know, exert implicit pressure, which is, you know, that the U.S. News knows that they could pull out or could threaten to do these things that would hurt their monopoly market share. And so they design what they know the schools will like. And that's exactly what I'm alleging. And so you, you're sort of seeing it a little bit break down in the law school market. I think you know some of the media reporting has been a little bit overblown. I think we're going to see a resolution very soon. But in the undergraduate market, you, you know, you don't even see this sort of like pulling out stuff because it's a very fine-tuned machine and the schools don't want to mess with it. But the fine-tuned machine that you, you describe here, in the book, you talk about the way they offer financial aid, suppress student-athlete wages, suppress faculty wages. And we know that the endowment of these schools are massive. I mean, I, I think I was just listening to podcasts which describe Texas. I'm not sure where Texas ranks in top 25, but Texas had 40-something billion or, or close something billion, whatever it was. And I can, if that's Texas, I'm thinking, and, and Texas is a big football school, so, you know, American football school. So I can, you know, I, that's probably where a lot of money goes to. But I'm just curious as to 
all of these schools are all these big endowments. How come the financial aid and all these wages aren't higher? Let's take those in turn. So on athlete wages, you know, I think this is one that like anyone who watches, you know, March Madness knows a little bit about, which is none of those athletes who generate so much money for the schools in terms of advertising revenue, TV rights, and so on and so forth. For the longest time, none of those students were getting paid a wage, despite the disproportionate amount of value they were creating for the school. And so what explains that is the schools all got together and said, we're all going to agree not to pay our students. And they had this collusive wage suppressing agreement. And then they tried to come up with a definition for college basketball focused on the amateurness of the athletes. And if you paid them, they wouldn't be amateurs anymore. And that would ruin the sport. And it was just the most BS argument that I think anyone's ever heard. It made no sense. And yet they took it all the way to the Supreme Court because they just didn't want to pay their athletes fair wages. I think you see that also in the financial aid situation. There's a class action lawsuit right now working its way through the courts where 17 elite colleges, Yale, Georgetown, Columbia, Duke, UChicago, Johns Hopkins, all of these schools have been colluding in this organization called the 568 Presidents Group. And what they do in this organization is they send their economists and their administrators, and they come up with a common formula that they're all going to use to assess aid need. So if I apply to multiple of those schools, I'll get roughly the same aid offer at all of the colleges. And they've been doing this for the better part of two decades. The media has completely ignored this story up until this lawsuit was filed this year. I think this is a massive scandal. I mean, it's exactly what you said, right? If you have billions and billions and tens of billions of dollars in endowment and you're not expanding your seats and you're not trying to grow, but you also don't want to pay more in financial aid, something you could quite easily afford, it's just boggling. It doesn't make any sense. But this is precisely what's been happening at the elite colleges. These are the types of cartel behaviors that I'm trying to talk about in my book. There's this common view out there. The schools are charities, and so we should give them tax breaks and subsidies and all of this stuff. But when you start to really focus on what they're doing, it is monopoly, monopoly, monopoly every step of the way, whether it's athlete wages, financial aid offers, seat scarcity. They are not trying to be charitable in any way. You currently study at Columbia Law. You're studying antitrust? That's right. That's right. Antitrust law. Now, a couple of questions here. Someone could say, why did you go to a great school? Because Columbia is considered one of the great, you know, the best schools in the United States. So, so are you infiltrating the system or are you benefiting from the fact that Columbia law is going to give you great access into that? And I'll ask you a second question after that. So I'm just curious about that. I just need to playing the other side. I think that's a totally fair question. You know, and a lot of people have asked me this question, which is every time I start getting on my soapbox about the elite colleges, they're like, okay, great. But you went to Georgetown for undergrad and you're going to Columbia Law School. Why do you go? I guess my point is, you know, I'm not saying that the elite colleges are bad. I think the professors are great. I think there are a ton of great opportunities students get out of these schools. My point is just that more students should be going and it should be much cheaper. So my point isn't that I don't want students to boycott the schools. I'm saying the schools should be forced to change so that they're accepting way more and opening up more access because you're exactly right. Going to Columbia Law will open doors for me. I just can't get anywhere. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Or else, it's a fact of some of these elite colleges. But that doesn't mean that no matter what they do, you, you shouldn't criticize them. I, I think, in fact, the opposite. I think it's the most important thing to do is criticize the institutions you're a part of. Because if you don't do that, who will? Yeah, you know, fair enough, fair enough. But well, then the other side of this question is, how does Columbia feel about what you're doing? How does Georgetown feel about what, you, what you're doing? I'll tell you two stories. One is when I was applying to law school, I went to one of these professors at Georgetown who was a bit of a mentor to me. And I said, look, I'm applying to law school. I'd love for you to, to write my letter of recommendation. He's like, okay, great. No problem. What have you been working on? And so I told him about this book that I've been writing about the elite colleges. And he's like, Thog, I'm going to stop you right there. I think it's a great idea. I don't think you should write about it in your application because no one's going to accept you. <laughs> uh. So, you know, we went back and forth on it a little bit. And in the end, I ended up including it a little bit in my application. You know, I didn't go into the full detail of, of what I was alleging. But my thinking was, look, I'm going to be honest to what I believe. The schools don't want to accept me. They don't have to. And, you know, I've gotten in, so I don't think they care too much on that. It was also at a very early stage at that point. Point number two is I am, though, trying to agitate to bring this issue up more. I'm not afraid to piss people off here or, or at Georgetown or elsewhere. At my own grad, so I graduated in 2020, but because of COVID, our graduation was postponed for two years, for ceremony. And so this last May, I had my own graduation. And as I was going up on stage, I dressed up as a Monopoly man. I put on the top hat, the mustaches, a monocle. <laughs> and I went and shook Jack DeJoy's hand, who's the president of Georgetown. And I said to him, you know, I kept holding onto his hand and I said to him, listen, Jack, you need to pull out of the 568 president's group. If you pull out and disavow the collusion, the whole thing will fold like a tent. And imagine the amount of positive press Georgetown will be able to generate by doing something positive like that. It's not too late. You can still pull out. You know, he's shaking my hand and he goes, all right, all right, thank you. Move along. And he hands me my diploma and moves me along. So look, I don't know if that was an effective form of protest, but I do know that he heard the message. And who knows, maybe as things develop with this lawsuit and as more pressure starts to build, that might be something that ends up being, you know, at least one of many things that contributes to change. And so that's how I'm thinking about it. What are the small or big things that I can do to help move the system in the right direction? Hey, so how's I got to say, this is great. I think you're protesting in every which way, your voice, your writing, you're saying it there, you're wearing outfits. I mean, this is just how protest is done. And even you going on all these podcasts, sharing this message, I think you're opening up people's minds to that because I'm not going to pretend like this hasn't been suspected. You know, I went to Fordham, I went to Liberty University for those, which is, they couldn't be further <laughs> opposite. Well, you know, I, my first introduction to the United States was like the most conservative school in, in the United States. And then I came to one of the most liberal parts. And I, you know, especially as someone who's a progressive, it's interesting seeing 
the system from both sides. Liberty University has religion, right? The largest Christian university in the world, or one of the largest Christian universities. So they get a lot of funding, but it's the Southern Baptist churches and, and all these things. When you look at Texas and all these places, gas, oil, the resources or the affiliations will fund those programs. And that's, that's the benefit of all these things that maybe other universities don't have. However, and I'm comparing the education, <laughs> sometimes, and even my friends in Ivy League will be like, well, I, I study this too. I study that too. And I'm then asking, well, if we're studying the same thing, and I think I'm doing this better than you are, if I'm being honest, what is the benefit of you having this many doors open because you went to that school if I know the same or more? And so we've always expected that. Any Fordham alumni would tell you that, well, we just to scrap the kids to get like the the third or fourth leftovers. So that to me has always been a frustrating thing just to receive on the other end. And I'm not putting down anyone in least schools because I, I did try to get into that. I just, again, just think about that opportunity. What you're saying is exactly right, which is at this point in higher education, it's not so much about the skills you're developing because everyone generally, I mean, you know, with the internet, with all the knowledge that's available out there, anyone who wants to really learn something and apply themselves can do it even without going to any school. That's true. You know, it's funny in like, you know, the 1800s, Abraham Lincoln learned how to be a great generational lawyer by borrowing books and studying at the back of a barn. Imagine what he could do with YouTube, with Google. And so you would think there would be more Abraham Lincolns today than there were back then. But somehow it's almost become the opposite. And so what explains that? And I think you're exactly right. You know, a lot of this has to do with signaling. When you get that Harvard diploma or an MIT diploma, there was a period of time where those schools were entirely online. And so you were basically getting the exact same education that you can get on MIT Open Courseware, which is their like free lectures on YouTube at actual MIT, but people were still paying full price tuition. Why were they choosing to do that? And I think the only explanation is it has nothing to do really with, with what they're learning or even how they're learning it. It has everything to do with network and signaling. Because when you go to an employer and you say, I graduated from MIT, they think, oh, this kid must be really good because he went through this filtering process that selected for people. So I get your point, which is that schools have to be somewhat exclusive in order to serve that signaling function. But you know, there's a really interesting study that came out recently. And it said that if the schools had kept the same standards from the 1990s, which again, still very selective in the 1990s, if they kept the exact same standards, the elite colleges would have tripled their enrollment. In other words, the number of seats available would have been 300% higher at places like Harvard and Yale and Stanford and Princeton. 300% is a massive difference. So, you know, there would be so many more slots that would have kept up with the increasing number of students. So it's not even at this point that it's signaling that explains this because they're over signaling. I mean, they're over restrictive. This is not a natural byproduct of the type of product or the market. It is a product of monopoly. It's because they're colluding that they've gotten even more restrictive beyond the point of common sense, beyond the point of the necessary thing to filter out, you know, talented people from people who are differently talented. So, you know, I completely concede your point, but it shouldn't be this bad. No. And so I agree. If we even get a three X improvement in, in the number of seats, that will completely change the atmosphere at some of these schools. And you won't see as much of varsity blues or, 
kids staying in the in the laundry hamper and and trying to pretend like they're students. And most importantly, imagine how many doors that's going to open for so many people in their career. That's my entire point. And I'm not disagreeing with you. I, I'm saying, you know, it, it was it's just a suspicion. A, a lot of my end. And when it's been brought up in the past, a lot of people will say, well, you're just bitter, right? You, di- you didn't get it. The reason I'm bringing it up from this perspective is I run a diversity equity inclusion firm. So that's my job. And so I'm going to companies ranging from fast growing startups to multinationals. They'll bring me in. We love your research, Ty, or all these things and that. But whenever we talk about recruiting, especially at the super fast growing ones or the multinationals, there is already a criteria based on who they want to recruit from. Ivy League, top school, top 25, all these things. And I'm always saying, well, have you thought to expand your market in this area? Well, our CEO came from this, or that I came from that. We have that type of college. We have a case study, MBA type college. And it's always fascinating to me where I'm like, you have already created, (laughs) I guess, a cartel if you want. There's no way you're going to expand your audience if you're not willing to look outside of that. And to me, it's not something that just starts in the undergrad. It just continues to grow up because these people go on to take on the same restrictive policies of the schools they came from. Yeah, it's a self-perpetuating cycle. What I will say is what's really interesting about what you're saying is, have you seen the movie Moneyball? Yeah. In Moneyball, the whole idea is to find the most undervalued player. So maybe they throw a little bit weird or they look kind of weird or they walk with a limp. Anything that people would think is defective, but actually is quite effective and just human bias that is making us undervalue them. And so if you think about what the employers are doing, they're doing like an anti-moneyball approach. And they're not looking for talent where other people aren't looking. They're all looking for the exact same people at the exact same place. And so I think there's a massive opportunity to try and bring moneyball to all of these really interesting places, fast-growing startup, you know, the financial sector, investment banking, consulting everywhere that they've only been looking for a very conventional type of person. I mean, there's no alpha. You're only going to get more of the same. But if you take the risk and a chance on someone from outside that criteria, I think you'll be surprised with how much is really undervalued out there. I couldn't agree more. Well, you know, people have been listening now, they'll be like, well, how can we take it down? So how how do you think the collusion and the wasteful spending and corruption can be brought down, actually? Yeah. So at the elite colleges, you know, I think some things, for example, are just no brainers. So when it comes to price fixing, you know, we have antitrust laws like the Sherman Antitrust Act, which says you're not allowed to collude with your competitors on how much you're going to charge your customers. But the schools, being as clever as they are, have written into law an exemption for themselves from this law. So I think banning all of those exemptions, very straightforward, common sense thing that you can do immediately. I think, you know, that's the baseline stuff that we ought to be doing. So banning early decision contracts, banning price fixing and collusion, you know, banning not paying your athletes, all of these exemptions, all of these things that the schools have been allowed to do, which is special to the schools, I don't think makes any sense anymore. And I think we know it doesn't make sense. And it's just that people aren't paying attention. So I would say those are very concrete things I would say to policymakers. More broadly, more ambitiously, When it comes to the fundamental problem, I think is a theme that we've been talking about throughout this podcast, which is that there's so much scarcity of seats. And that's what allows them to charge these crazy prices. And that's what allows them to have the market power to collude. Because if all of them collude, there's nowhere else a student can go. So they can continue to charge these crazy prices. That's the area I think the government really needs to tackle. And I think there are a couple of approaches they can take. Number one, they can say, you know, if you don't increase the number of seats, 
every single year by this much, we're going to tax your endowment. And now the schools are super greedy about their endowment. And I think that's a really easy way to control them through tax policy. The second more ambitious and the thing I think is the most cost-effective thing in the world would be for the U.S. government to buy U.S. News and World Report and change the rankings criteria so that the schools are actually encouraged to expand the number of seats that they have and will go down in the rankings if they don't. Right now, we have this really weird system where you have this private newspaper regulating schools who have assets in the hundreds of billions of dollars. It doesn't make any sense. It's completely counter to public policy. It's just as socialistic, if that's the word you want to use, when a private newspaper is doing the regulating, and they're not doing it in the public interest. There's no oversight. No one knows how these criteria are done. No one knows how much collusion is actually going on behind the scenes, how much pressure the schools are exerting. And so I think bringing that under the federal umbrella makes all the sense in the world. And if the government won't step in, maybe there's something that a charity should look at, you know, buying out that newspaper and really open sourcing how the rankings are done to change the logic of the schools. I think if we can do those two things, tax schools that don't increase seats and change the logic of the rankings so that schools are incentivized to actually increase the number of seats, I think we'll break up seat scarcity. If we break up seat scarcity, I think we break up the college cartel. And then lastly, my most radical idea is sort of, you know, more in the mold of a, of a Teddy Roosevelt or Woodrow Wilson, which is, you know, if you think about like, what would those guys do if, if they were here and, and they saw this cartel operating like this, they'd say, break up the endowments. And what they'd say is bring a hammer to Harvard and they have $50 billion, break it up into five, $10 billion endowments and seed new schools all over the country or take those endowments and give them to existing schools so that now you've increased the number of really hyper well-resourced schools in the United States and create a completely radically different, more competitive market. You know, I don't know if that's something that's realistic. It takes a lot of political will and courage. And I don't know if we live in that time anymore, at least with the politicians we have now. The politicians are just, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. but that would be something that in an ideal world, I think could, could spur a lot of growth and good. I love every single idea you have. And then I, I wish and I hope I'm an optimist, but I'm an angry optimist. So I'm hopeful. <laughs> but, you know, one of this I'm also angry about, though, is just the, the tuition level. Like even if you do a quick Google search, right? Columbia, Vassar, Duke, 50000 a year just for tuition. And this is not housing. That is. And then you, you do the research. It's not like wages are increasing at the same percentage. Yeah, yeah they're not. Yeah. Between 1980 and 2015, it's, it's quadrupled in terms of that. A tuition at public colleges alone. Hopefully some of the things you mentioned can able, can be able to combat that because what happens to the kid who comes in a, in a, you know, maybe grew up in a poor neighborhood, but happens to be so academically gifted that he can get in there, but then he can't get into the area because he can't or she or they can't afford that. Uh, so I look, I completely agree with you. And again, I would say, you know, one of the reasons prices are so high is because the elite colleges have sort of distorted the whole market. <sighs> so even if you want to go to UVA or Michigan or Berkeley and get in-state tuition, at this point, it's very difficult to do that because what has happened is the schools, again, are ranked on how much they spend on how few students. So you want to decrease the number of students and up the amount of spending to climb in the ranking. So they spend money on stupid things, even the public colleges, and that's where the tuition keeps going up, right? So if you look at, for example, you know, there's some public colleges in the South, they have like lazy rivers, which cost like $300 million or something to build. It's like, who is this making the education better for? And it's not, it's not, but it just counts under, you know, some of these criteria. 
to help make the school look a little bit more attractive through this rankings mechanism. And so there's all of this wasteful, wasteful spending, and it's just being extracted from consumers. And you know, this is another indication of monopoly, which is where they're not offering anything more. It's not like there's more quality to the good. It's getting better. The teaching is somehow radically improving. None of that is happening. It's the exact same type of education you would get 10 years ago, 20 years ago, basically carbon copy. Same textbooks, basically, you know, same blackboards, whiteboards. Maybe they'll put a smart board in to make it look a little bit more futuristic, but it's the exact same. So the good is not getting much better. Price keeps going up because it can, and they want to just spend as much money as possible. So they'll extract as much more. And this is exactly what monopolies do is they extract as much as possible for themselves and use it in inefficient, wasteful ways. Yeah. Well, thank you for the education, pun intended. Uh, <laughs> where can people get your book? So first of all, I have a website called breakthecartel.com. I made it myself, so it's not a very pretty website at the present moment. But the reason I bring this up is because I have a petition on that website, a change.org petition, where people can sign and indicate to Congress that they want Congress to overturn the price-fixing exemption that elite colleges have. So if you don't think that the world's wealthiest schools should be allowed to fix prices on middle-class students, please, I beg of you, go to www.breakthecartel.com and please sign that petition. And that's also a really good place to stay in touch with me because there are a couple of links there. You can find my Twitter, you can find my Substack. And when the book comes out in January, I will be posting on all of those platforms. Those are the two places that they can stay engaged with this fight, help even by doing something so simple as signing a petition and stay engaged with me for the book. To breakthecartel.com and your Twitter. Yes. I will make sure I put that in the show notes. My last question is my mission statement reframed as a question, and that is use your difference to make a difference. So I feel like you've answered this already, but I want you to see if you can answer in a sentence or two. How do you, Sahaj, use your difference to make a difference? I try to think about what are the most important problems that no one is talking about. I think this is a really important frame because there are a lot of important problems that people are talking about. I'm pretty confident that we have good people working on climate change. We have smart people working on some of the biggest problems facing society. But when it comes to some of these more niche issues like monopoly and this sector, that, or in higher education, exploitive practices, I think too often these things go under the radar. And the advice I would encourage everyone to do is think a little bit differently and find things that no one else is really talking about because those are the, the areas where you're probably needed most. There you have it. There you have it. Shaharda, thank you so much. This has been a real pleasure. I'm so excited that you're, you are out in the world doing this. So looking forward to you dismantling repression. Thank you so much, Taya. This has been a fantastic conversation. I hope I can come back soon. Yes, please. Kings, queens of royalty. Until next time, use a different to make a difference. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. 
This is the pineapple mango flavor my fave. You know what? All five craveable splash refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 